Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? I'm going to begin with a New Testament reading from the Gospel of Matthew, some verses from chapter 26 and then from chapter 27, um, both having to do with the betrayal of Jesus by Judas Iscariot. I'm reading these particular passages because uh, Matthew says that Judas's actions and the subsequent actions of the of the chief priests of the temple are a fulfillment of Zechariah 11. Um, talk about that some during the sermon. <clears throat> Matthew 26, starting with verses 14 to 16, where it says, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him, 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, skip ahead to chapter 27, and we'll read verses 3 through 10. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field, as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Let's turn back now to Zechariah chapter 11. Zechariah 11. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus. For the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. Thus said the Lord my God, Become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them, slaughter them, and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, I have become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor, and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. 
So I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs. One I named Favor, the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep. In one month, I destroyed the three shepherds. But I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff, favor, and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day. And the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, Give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Then I broke my second staff, union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Then the Lord said to me, Take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed, or seek the young, or heal the maimed, or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hoofs. Woe to my worthless shepherd! Who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. Amen. You may be seated. I would just like to say at the very beginning of this sermon that this is a hard chapter. And so if you were already thinking that, but you're too embarrassed to admit it, it is okay. This is a hard chapter. This is the kind of chapter in the Bible where you kind of wish that you could invite Zechariah up here for some Q&A. You know? we wish, it would be nice if we had maybe a little more information than we do about the historical context of um, the political situation of Israel maybe. Um, right after the exile during Zechariah's time. We know some, for example, from Ezra and Nehemiah, but maybe not as much as we would like, not enough to maybe get all of the historical references here that are bound up with this situation. I already brought up a couple months ago, ironically, on another chapter from Zechariah, um, that part of our confession of faith uh, about the clarity of Scripture. Remember, it's one of the attributes of Scripture. The Bible is essentially clear. But uh, it goes on to say there that not all parts of the Bible are equally clear or equally clear to everybody. Um, And Zechariah is known, well known, for being a very difficult book in general. And the last few chapters of Zechariah are known for being a very difficult section of this very difficult book. And that's okay. We would expect that in a book like this, the word of God, infinite, eternal God, 
revealing himself in his word, that there would be some things that would be harder for others, some things that would really challenge us, some things that would be difficult to understand. Um, but we want to remember also that how our confession of faith goes on when it talks about the things that are necessary to be known and believed and observed for salvation. Those things are very clear in the Bible. You don't have to go to seminary or use some kind of magic to get at that basic message. Yeah, not everything in this chapter is as crystal clear as we might like. But this is a case in point. The basic message of this chapter is crystal clear. And I hope to show you that tonight to kind of cut through some of the the questions that naturally arise and to show what is the central message that God is trying to get across to his people in this sort of pageant, this demonstration that he is having his prophet go through um, in this in this portion of his of his prophecy, and ultimately, where I'm hoping that all of this will come together for all of us is is when we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, and we think about our good Shepherd, the Shepherd rejected by his own people, right? The Shepherd whose rejection and betrayal was bought. For 30 pieces of silver. And at some point, we can just say, you know, I don't get everything that's going on in this chapter, but I get that. I get that. I get that this is previewing for me, prefiguring, pointing me towards the betrayal and rejection and suffering of Lord Jesus. And it is attracting me, moreover. It's, and see, this is the thing. It's not just... Uh, giving us a prophetic picture. It's not um, this mere prediction so that we can look at the New Testament and say, oh, wow, look, what Zechariah said came true. That is one part of the point, but it's about so much more than that because what the Lord doing is doing here is he is seeking to attract us to the shepherding care of Jesus. He's trying to draw us to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as our shepherd. And not to reject him. To embrace the Lord Jesus as my shepherd. Because I can see that the alternatives to that will only ever bring me ruin. And that's the point of this difficult chapter. So let's divide it into three parts tonight as we work our way through First will be the defeated shepherds, it's verses 1 through 3. Second, the rejected shepherd, verses 4 through 14. And then third, the anti-shepherd, which is a term I'm um, borrowing from Ian Dugood, who got it from another scholar. Anyway, the defeated shepherds, the rejected shepherd, and the anti-shepherd. Okay, so first, the defeated shepherds. It's not uh, the first time we've used this terminology of shepherding, right, of, of shepherds. That's what we were talking about last time in chapter 10. Last time, the contrast was between the Lord himself as the good shepherd and then the, the good shepherds, plural, that he promises to provide for Israel on the one hand. And on the other hand, there were the bad shepherds, the leaders who have let God's people down, who have failed in their responsibility to care for them. To, to reflect God's shepherding care 
over them like they're supposed to do. These leaders who have failed to direct the people spiritually in service to the Lord. And so chapter 10 um, ended up talking about the Lord, the good shepherd. And how the Lord, the good shepherd, was going to defeat Israel's enemies in this sort of new exodus that we talked about. This echo of the original exodus, except it was going to be even greater. Uh, And the Lord is going to bring this reunion of all of the people of God, uh, pictured in this reunion of the northern and southern kingdoms into a united kingdom once again. Um, And the people were going to multiply until there wasn't going to be room in the original boundaries of the promised land to hold them all. This was a restored Israel bursting at the seams. That's the picture we got in chapter 10. Well, here at the beginning of chapter 11, we're back to the bad shepherds again. There's a connection here with chapter 10, because in in verse 10 of the previous chapter, um, it talked about God having to... Uh, there wasn't going to be room in the promised land for all of these returning Israelites, so God was going to have to put some of them in Lebanon and Gilead as this kind of overflow area for all of these multiplying Israelites to go. Well, here in at the beginning of chapter 11, you see Lebanon mentioned right away there at the beginning of verse 1. And then in verse 2, it talks about Bashan. Well, Bashan is right next door to Gilead. So it's a similar geographic area to what he was talking about before. Um, very often, the prophets um, will alternate back and forth between these warnings of coming judgment and then promises of future restoration and hope. And that's what's happening here. This warning against Israel's bad shepherds is kind of a mirror image of the promise of hope in the previous chapter. So now the Lord is saying something different about Lebanon and Gilead slash Bashan. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. Okay, so there are these word pictures going on here again. Um, this is the way the prophets communicate is through these word pictures, these, these images, poetic images. Um, and to understand the word pictures in these first couple of verses, it helps to, to remember something about the geography of Israel. Remember that much of Israel, especially down around Jerusalem in the south of Judah, um, it's relatively kind of arid climate, and uh, there aren't a lot of big trees around. The vegetation is pretty scrubby um, on the whole. However, if you go up to the north, to Lebanon, Lebanon is known for its great cedar trees. Um, and then also there are these oak trees of Bashan, or I heard refers to cypresses um, as well. Uh, I guess the cypresses are in Lebanon, the oaks in Bashan. So much larger trees, right, that you wouldn't typically find down around Jerusalem or in Judah. Um, and so to somebody who had grown up in Jerusalem, you can imagine how the, the stories about those great woods of the north and the northeast would have just sounded amazing. You'd, it was somewhere you, something you'd want to go and see if you got the opportunity. Whoa, they're so tall, they're so big. Like you and I might think about going to California and seeing the giant redwoods or something like that, you know, by comparison. Imagine a prophet saying, woe to California for its giant sequoias have been cut down and burned, right? Imagine the impact that that would have for us. And what a tragedy that would be for California. It would be a loss not only of 
uh, of great natural beauty and history, but also of kind of something that state takes pride in. It's, it's kind of claim to fame, right? And so what these verses are picturing for us is the humiliation, the bringing low, the cutting down of things that once seemed very powerful and impressive. Okay, It's talking about the power of these leaders, these bad shepherds that God is going to oppose and judge. What's pictured in one way in verses 1 and 2 gets interpreted in verse 3. What am I talking about when I talk about the destruction of these trees? Is it, is it Lebanon and Bashan are going to lose their trees? No, that's not the point. The tr- point is not the uh, trees literally getting cut down. This is a symbol. The sound of the wail of the shepherds for their glory is ruined. These leaders of God's people that once seemed powerful, they seemed impressive, but that power, that impressive influence can be taken away. It can be brought low. It can be cut down. It can be humbled. It can be ruined. This is another picture of the way God, as Israel's good shepherd, is going to execute judgment against the bad shepherds who have failed in their leadership responsibility. Okay, so so far so good. You might be thinking, well, maybe this chapter isn't too hard to understand after all. Um, Okay, verse 4, it starts to get a little bit trickier. So here we get kind of a fork in the road in terms of how exactly we understand what's going on uh, some people, um, I, I leaned heavily on some commentators in this section, but even they didn't all exactly agree with one another. Um, uh, so Ian Duguid would be an example of, of somebody who would describe this next section in terms of what he calls a prophetic sign act. And this is something the prophets do sometimes. God will have the prophet go and do a, a symbolic action that represents a spiritual reality. Uh, And so it could be that the Lord is actually telling Zechariah to go find a flock of sheep that's being fattened up to be eaten soon and go and actually act as a shepherd over that actual flock of sheep, but doing that to symbolize something about Israel's public life. Another alternative that also involves this shepherding symbolism is that the Lord is using symbolic language to tell Zechariah actually to go take a political leadership position of some kind in Israel, to act out his prophetic message uh, through some kind of temporary um, public office that he's going to hold, some kind of political influence he's going to have. Um, so uh, I've mentioned uh, Thomas Mikomsky several times in the past. He thinks that the answer might be somewhere in between, that the Lord is telling Zechariah to, to act out this life of a shepherd with real literal sheep, but he's supposed to do it in a very public way, kind of in front of all of the people where everybody's going to notice in a way that's sending a very clear message about the state of leadership among God's people. And that is then going to have some very concrete uh, political consequences. And so, and that's, that's going to um, really irritate the leaders of their day, because they get it. They get that Zechariah is making a point about them. And so when Zechariah becomes shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter, verse 4, um, we could think of that as real sheep symbolizing the Israelites. But then when verse 8 says, in one month I destroyed the three shepherds, 
Those three shepherds are, are three political leaders being removed from office. Okay, so you can see how, how tricky this is. And again, it's, it's one of those things where oh, it would be really nice if we get Zechariah up here for, for some Q&A. Um, now, there's one direction we could go with this. We could, and some people, some people do, um, we could just start speculating. Well, I think it could have been this. Well, I think it could have been that. Maybe this is what happened. Well, once you start doing that, once you start speculating on what it could mean, well, there are really no limits at that point. You can make any guess that you want, but it's also not very useful because there's no way to verify those guesses. And so it's not really worth our time to speculate. And so we're not going to do it. Um, we just don't have enough information to figure out, to really pin down exactly what historical circumstances match up with the details of the prophet's words and actions here. But that's okay. We don't, we don't have to because that's not the point. Um, and in fact, this is a good lesson about how to read prophecy and how to read the Bible in general. When you get to a dead end like that, uh, well, it's the best thing to do is like when you run into the dead end, into a dead end on the road. There are a couple things you can do. Um, you can put the car in four-wheel drive if you have it and just go off-road, right, and blast through the dead end. Um, or you can think, I think I must have made a wrong turn somewhere, and I'm going to back up and try going down a different path to get to the proper destination. Maybe that's what I was interested in finding out, but maybe that's not what the Lord is interested in revealing to me in this passage. Maybe that's not the point. See, the Lord could have provided the answers to all these questions. He's perfectly able to do that. He could have satisfied our curiosity. But sometimes the Lord isn't really interested in satisfying our curiosity. He's interested in getting across a very important message to his people. And so instead of going off-road into speculation, let's put the car in reverse, let's back up, turn around, and ask a better question. What is the main symbolism here? Whether Zechariah is taking care of literal sheep in a symbolic way, or whether he's taking care of people who are symbolically being described as sheep, the point is really the same. The Lord wants Zechariah to point out that God's people are being failed by their leaders because their own leaders have no pity on them. The leaders of his people are selling out the common people to enrich themselves. And that failure of leadership is going to lead to ruin for the whole land. That is the trajectory that Israel is on, anyway. And when you see the destruction come on the whole land because of the failure of the leaders in verses 4 through 6, you might first be inclined to think, well, that doesn't seem very fair. Um, why would God bring this covenant judgment on the whole nation if, if the people, the common people, are the victims here? They're the ones who are being harmed by this bad leadership. That's where verses 7 through 11 come into play. The problem is not all on the leadership side of things. Because what's happening here is God is providing for these sheep doomed to slaughter a better shepherd, a better leader in Zechariah. So I became the shepherd of the flock doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, shepherd's staffs. One I named Favor, the other I named Union and I tended the sheep. 
Zechariah is symbolizing good leadership, godly leadership, life-giving leadership. And, and he even, uh, whether again, whether literally or symbolically, I, I don't know for sure, he, he says gets rid of three bad shepherds, three bad leaders. But you look at what happens after all of this. It says, but I became impatient with them, the sheep, and they also detested me. See, what's happened here is the Lord has provided for his people a better shepherd. But that better shepherd, the sheep are rejecting. They detested him. They don't want this better shepherd. They're not accepting his leadership and care. They're saying, no, we detest you. We don't want you. So what happens in response to that? What happens is they end up losing that better shepherd. And they end up getting essentially what they want. They get what they want, which is not going to be good for them. You know this from other passages in Scripture. Sometimes God's judgment on sinners who won't repent is simply giving us what we want when what we want will actually destroy us. When we say, no, we don't want the good, life-giving, shepherding care that the Lord is ready and willing to give, what's the alternative? The alternative is ruin. As just the natural consequence of our own choices, let alone the righteous judgment of God. And so Zechariah says, if that's what you want, if you detest me, if, you don't, if you're going to reject this good shepherding care the Lord is providing, then what is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. What a devastating message to receive from the Lord. But you see why it comes. It's because the people do not want will not receive the grace that is held out to them by the Lord. In response to this rejection of Zechariah, those symbolic staffs that he had taken up named Favor and Union, uh, those are broken. Um, one of them is broken in verse 10, the other one later on in verse 14. Um, there's a little bit of an, there's another difficult, I told you there's a lot of difficulties here. There's a little bit of a difficulty in the verse where it says um, that um, I took my staff favor and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. And there's some question, what exactly is it referring, what covenant is being referred to here? One commentator had what I thought was a pretty good solution, suggesting that he's referring to God's sort of peace treaty with the surrounding nations by which he would be withholding them from attacking Israel. But that is now being annulled so that Israel is no longer going to benefit from that protection. 
I'm not, I'm not sure that that's correct. It's one direction we could go in thinking about, yeah, a little bit of a, a more difficult verse. But again, this is another good lesson for reading difficult chapters and reading prophecy in general, is where something is less clear, um, one of the best things you can do is to focus on the parts that are more clear. Um, keep, keep learning about the more difficult parts, but focus on what's clearest. And so that's what we're going to continue to do here. Uh, the plot thickens a little bit in verses 11 and 12. Um, the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. And so, of course, there you hear that uh, famous phrase that's brought up in the New Testament that reminds us of Judas and so on. We want to make sure we understand what's happening here with Zechariah, though. Um, We don't want to skip too quickly to Matthew. We want to think, what's happening with Zechariah? Bear in mind that Zechariah has, he's, again, there's the kind of alternative ways of looking at it. He's either been shepherding some actual sheep with a symbolic meaning, or he's been carrying out a public office described in a symbolic way, or some combination of the two. Um, Whichever it is, he has now resigned that position, and he's asking, pay me what you think I was worth. Or don't. And he's going to see how the people react. Now, these 30 pieces of silver. Um, some people look at that and think, what a, what a small amount. They're insulting Zechariah by paying him so little. Um, sometimes all, uh, people also bring up that in Exodus chapter 21, 30 shekels, 30 pieces of silver, represents the monetary value of a slave in a particular context in that chapter. So it could be that the point is that they're treating him as though he has the same value as a slave. Um, again, sort of belittling the work that he's done, devaluing, undervaluing this good shepherd that they've rejected. Um, not everybody takes exactly that way. Um, 30 pieces of silver, some will point out, well, that's not a huge amount, but it's not a tiny amount either. It's a significant amount. And so I'm not, I'm not certain um, that we can say it's the smallness of the amount that matters so much. I think it's a a more general point. What's so serious here is the fact that these people are willing to say, here's your money, now go away. Take your money and go. They are willing to pay him and say goodbye. Here's your last paycheck, Zechariah. Goodbye. I think that's really what's supposed to hit us in the gut here. And you can see in the Lord's response in verse 13 that whether it's a bigger amount or a small amount, it's, it's not something he wants Zechariah to keep. He says, throw it to the potter. We're not, we're not gonna, Zechariah's not going to keep this money, this, this lordly price. And there's a, definitely a note of irony, even sarcasm in that, that lordly price. Zechariah takes the 30 pieces of silver and he throws them into the house of the Lord to the potter. And what this probably means is that there's a, there, there would have been potters connected with the temple, these craftsmen who would have made pottery for the temple. Okay, now, I'm going to go on to verse 15 now, and looking back over the whole, we'll connect this with Judas and Jesus in a minute. First, let's go on to verse 15. So, the people have rejected this good shepherd, Zechariah. So, what are they going to get instead? It's a big part of this chapter. If Zechariah is out of the picture, 
what's going to take his place. Then the Lord said to me, take once more the equipment of a shepherd, yes, but this time a foolish shepherd. For behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed or seek the young or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hoofs. This is a really horrifying picture of a leader who is going to abuse the people under his leadership. And the point is, this is what you get when you reject the good leadership of the Lord, and by extension, the good leadership of the godly leaders that he provides for you. What do you get when you reject that? Well, you get this other kind of leader. You get bad leaders who are going to treat you badly and who are going to end up devouring the very ones that they're supposed to be caring for. Instead of feeding the sheep, they eat the sheep. Uh, They're not going to get away with it, ultimately. That's verse 17. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. That's quite a message of judgment. Wow. The point is the Lord is going to judge these bad leaders for their bad leadership. It's a very sobering thought for anybody in a position of office or influence in Christ's church. Very sobering, let me tell you. For myself. But that badness of the bad shepherds does not erase the culpability of the people who are under their leadership. Yes, there is definitely a special aggravation of evil that applies to people who lead others into evil. So leaders are held accountable in a special way by God. It's especially bad when people in positions of leadership lead others in evil. On the other hand, it can be kind of a chicken and egg problem. Why do God's people get bad leaders? Well, sometimes it's because those are the leaders that we have attracted. Those are the leaders that we've put in place. Those are the leaders that we thought we wanted only to realize too late how serious of a problem it turned out to be. And so it's when we reject God's model for godly leadership, God's description of the kinds of people that we ought to be elevating into leadership positions, that's when we wind up with ungodly leaders who wreak havoc on the church. And ultimately, of course, it's when we reject the Lord himself that we become in bondage to all kinds of other influences in our lives, as well as including uh, human leaders who will enslave and destroy us. See, we'd be very remiss if we treated this chapter solely as a lesson in leadership or even a lesson in church polity. Um, All it has applications to those things. So I've just been showing you, I I hope. The reason we can't stop there is that it's unmistakable that this chapter is reaching towards the future. Yes, it has application to Zechariah's own day, leadership problems that existed in that first generation after the return from exile. But where in Israel's history, where in Israel's history is the ultimate example of God sending his people a good shepherd that his people detested 
and rejected. Said, we do not want you. Think about John chapter 1. He came to his own, and his own received him not. I am the good shepherd, Jesus said. The good shepherd lays down his very life for the sheep. But you see, the people of Israel, they rejected that good shepherd that God sent to them. And uh, more than one writer reflecting on this, thinks, thinking again towards the long-range trajectory of this prophetic pattern Zechariah is laying out. Think about what happened after Jesus' resurrection and ascension just a few decades later. As Jesus himself looked forward to, like in Matthew 24, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem by the Romans under Titus in the year AD 70. Utter destruction and really the end of Israel as a separate political entity. An utter subjugation to the tyranny of Rome. The crushing of the land with none to deliver, if you look at verse 6. That's when that ultimately comes to pass might have happened in partial ways before and during other times of leadership crisis, but it happened in the ultimate and fullest way when Israel rejected the Good Shepherd, the Lord Jesus. And they were crushed in an irremediable way in AD 70. Well, that rejection of Jesus... Um, touches this chapter in a very pointed way, of course, when we think about the betrayal of Judas Iscariot. We read that history earlier from Matthew. Those 30 pieces of silver that the temple leaders gave to Judas. You think about what insult doesn't even begin to describe what was going on there. For, for Judas to take any amount of money as the price for handing over to his enemies the Son of God and the Savior of the world, the lordly price at which Jesus was priced by both Judas and the chief priests. A horrifying travesty of justice. This, this utter belittling of Jesus and his work. Um, and there's more that we could say about that. There's more we could say about the way that fulfillment plays out with Judas when he throws the 30 pieces of silver into the temple, like Zechariah does here, um, and then the, the, the pre chief priests gather it up, and, and there's this, you, know, you can remember their just rank hypocrisy when they say with that pious air, oh, we can't put this money in the treasury since it's blood money. You talk about like straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. It's like, oh, we can't put it in the treasury. This is blood money. It's, you know, they're condemning themselves. They're fully aware of what they've just done in... Um, paying for the assassination of Jesus, essentially, through the Romans. And um, so they, they buy, with that money, the potter's field. Again, such a striking echo of this prophecy, the way this all comes together. And, and you might think, well, this is, it doesn't seem to match one-to-one-to-one, -to -one -to -one what Zechariah is describing here. We have to remember some of the lessons about what, what is prophecy fulfillment. Um, sometimes we think, the prophets make predictions. They give us like this video, um, this video image of what's going to happen in the future, and then fulfillment is when that video like comes to life. That's not the proper understanding of what prophecy and fulfillment means. 
the, what Matthew's doing is he's picking up on these echoes about how it's happening with Judas and the temple leaders and the 30 pieces of silver and the potter. It's all this complex of events that, that also echoes things that happen in the book of Jeremiah as well. It's all of this Old Testament um, uh, uh, picturing and prefiguring and foreshadowing of the work of Christ to come and the rejecting of the Lord by his covenant people. It's all coming to a head. All of these echoes are simply resounding in the betrayal and crucifixion of Jesus in an unmistakable way. And yeah, there's so much more we could say about that. We go into a lot more detail. I've preached on Matthew 26 and 27 before. I'm not preaching on those chapters tonight, so I've got to resist the urge to, to keep going there. And it's important, but it's important that we resist that urge because tonight it's Zechariah 11 that's in front of us. And there is a lesson for God's people in this chapter that for all its difficulties is clear in this respect. The main point of this passage, the central message, is that if you reject the Lord as your shepherd, if you say, no, I'm not going to have that, I'm not going to have Christ tell me what to do, The alternative is not freedom. It is not life. It is not happiness. It is ruin. Remember like we've been talking about in morning worship. Who would you really rather serve? The Lord or the foolish, worthless shepherds that will surely Take his place if you refuse the Lord as your shepherd. Remember that our good shepherd Jesus laid down his life for his sheep. He willingly submitted to that betrayal of Judas, to that condemnation and crucifixion and death. And he did all of that so that you could be forgiven and accepted by God if you will only trust in him, if you will only receive him, as your Savior and King. Yes, he came to his own, and his own received him not. But to as many as did receive him, who believed on his name, John goes on, to them he gave the right to be called children of God. What better shepherd Could there ever be? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the ways that it teaches us. Thank you also for the ways that it challenges us, that even through its difficulties, it draws us in, it provokes us to think. And we pray you'd help us to keep doing that, to keep growing in our understanding Lord, we also pray that in that effort you would help us not to miss the clearest things of all. Lord, capture our hearts and our imaginations and our love with the goodness and the beauty of our good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen.